it would be very easy to take each of these Beatitudes one at a time. They're so full of theology, uh, so, so much to say about each one of them. But we're, we're probably going to take these over the next several weeks. We'll split them up into two or threes. And really they're a continuation of Jesus' explanation of this coming kingdom that he is ushering in, that he's inaugurating. So with Jesus' baptism, if we can just backtrack a little bit into chapter 3, his baptism by John and his, his trials in the desert, Jesus has, has begun his earthly ministry. And as he returns from the desert, he begins preaching about this new kingdom that is near at hand, this new kingdom that is, that is coming very soon, he says. And it is a spiritual kingdom that he is coming to inaugurate. And last week, if you'll remember, in verses uh, uh, 12 through 22, we began to look at these two aspects, uh, the first two aspects of this new kingdom. First, the creed of the new kingdom, as you remember. The new creed is repentance. Only one way to enter this new kingdom and that is by repenting of your sin. And then he went on to talk about the call of this new kingdom. This call was to follow me with all the benefits and trials thereof. And beginning in chapter 4, verse 23, through chapter 7, he begins to describe this new kingdom. So look with me, if you will, at chapter 4, verse 23. There we read, And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. We'll pause there for a moment because this is really an introductory paragraph of the next five chapters. What Matthew is doing here is he is teeing up for us what the next five chapters are going to be about. And as we look at these three verses, we see... In verse 23, he went through all, out all of Galilee, teaching about the kingdom, preaching the gospel, and healing the sick. And through these actions, Jesus is showing what this new kingdom is like. First, we see that the new kingdom makes broken people whole again. What do I mean by that? Well, Jesus inaugurates this new kingdom by healing healing every disease and afflictions, God's word says. goes on to, to elaborate the sick, those in pain, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, para, paralytics. He is making broken people whole again. And this prepares us for chapters 8 and 9, where they're going to, we're going to see no less than seven miracles of his healing. B.B. Warfield, the great Princeton theologian, wrote, When the Lord came down to earth, he drew heaven with him. Isn't that beautiful? And we begin to see the effects 
of that of that wake, if you will, of heaven coming to earth right here physically. A foretaste, a foreshadow, if you will, of God's kingdom of heaven here on earth. How the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, ushering in this new kingdom, makes people whole again. Not just physically, not just outwardly, but inwardly, spiritually. But we'll talk more about that later when we get there. But here we also see, if you look at verse 23, that Jesus went throughout all of Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. He begins teaching about and proclaiming this new kingdom. That prepares us for what we are about to see in chapters 5, 6, and 7, what we know colloquially as the Sermon on the Mount. So look with me, if you will, at chapter 5, verse 1, as we read through verse 16 and, and learn about the beginnings of this new kingdom. God's word says there, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain and he sat down. His disciples came to him and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who persecute you for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except being thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the strange world and wisdom of Jesus, Sean O'Donnell wrote. Welcome to Jesus' narrow gate theology, he said. Welcome to what it means to be a blessed disciple of Christ. Jesus begins his teaching ministry in Matthew by laying down what the population of this new kingdom looks like. And it contains these beatitudes. Mark Ross comments that these beatitudes are not a list of spiritual qualities from which one might choose one or more personal goals. That's not what they're about. He writes, in hopes of attaining the blessing assigned to it. Rather, it's a unified portrait of those blessed souls 
whose great privilege it is to be possess already the kingdom of heaven. And he concludes by saying, this is a portrait of kingdom citizens. We've looked at the creed and the call of this new kingdom. This morning we're going to look at what these citizens of this new kingdom actually look like. Jesus here is describing us, is describing believers, is describing people who have given their life to Christ. And he uses the form, the formula, blessed, that repeated formula. These, these eight qualities are, are many times called the Beatitudes, coming from the Latin Beati. But what does being blessed mean? What does it mean to be a blessed person? Well, if we just took a quick look at other places, we discover it, descri- it describes a person who is especially favored by God. If you're blessed, you're especially favored by God. You remember when Mary went to see Elizabeth in Luke 1 when she was pregnant and the baby jumped in Mary's womb. And Elizabeth exclaimed, Blessed are you among women. Elizabeth, we're told there, being filled by the Holy Spirit, this is, this is God's word coming through her, expresses how highly favored Mary is because of the child that she is carrying. How highly favored Mary is. Or remember Psalm 1, back in Psalm 1, that, that psalm that compares two types of people, right? One whom God favors and one whom he does not. And if you remember how it starts out, it says, Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of mockers. Or how about the Aaronic benediction in number 6? The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. The reason those good words are said at the end of a worship service many times is because God wants to remind us how highly favored we are in his eyes. He wants that to be the last thing we hear. You see, brothers and sisters, God wants you to know how truly loved, how truly treasured, how highly favored you are. Not because of our special abilities and talents. As we see here, Jesus describing citizens of this new kingdom, it's because of our weakness and need that we're highly favored. That's what the first three Beatitudes show us. Just the opposite of the world we live in, isn't it? Usually to be highly favored, you have to have some special quality, right? Think of all first-round draft picks in all the sports. You have to have this, these special abilities to be favored by teams, whether it's being fast and accurate in your release like Dan Marino or a great three-point shooting ability like Larry Bird or, or a flawless baseball swing like, Kevin, uh, like Ken Griffey Jr., Teams highly favor them because of their special abilities. Not so with kingdom citizens. 
kingdom citizens, and this is the first point of the sermon, know that they are spiritually bankrupt. That's what makes them highly favored. Kingdom citizens know they are spiritually bankrupt. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. God's kingdom is filled with people who know that they are not spiritual giants. God's kingdom is filled with people who know they have no business being part of God's kingdom. God's kingdom is filled with people who ask the the question, Why me? In other words, all the citizens walking around in Jesus' kingdom know they cannot meet God's standard by themselves. In his essay, You're Not As Virtuous As You Think, Nita Nuria, the dean of Harvard Business School, writes, In the lab, in the classroom, and beyond, we tend to be less virtuous than we think we are. This arrogance is on display in politics, in business, in sports, in all aspects of life. There are political candidates who say they won't use attack ads until late in the race. They do. We rate ourselves as above average drivers, investors, employees, even though the math dictates that can't all be true. Nuria has a name for this gap between how people believe they would behave and how they actually behave. He calls it moral overconfidence. And brothers and sisters, we're born with that. That is our flesh. That is what we believe. We think we live cleaner lives than we do, don't we? I mean, just ponder this. When is the last time you repented of, your, of a sin? Or even, even, even think about this. Try and think of more than three or four or five sins that you have committed in the last week. It's hard, isn't it? Because we think we're better than we are. People think they live closer to God's standard than is actually true. That the chasm between they and God is just not that wide. And most believe they will go up. That's what a woman I talked to this week said when I asked her where she thought she would go when she died. She said, I hope up. I asked why. She said, because I'm a good person. Moral overconfidence. And that moral overconfidence actually excludes you from the kingdom of God, sadly. As Jesus is going on to say a little while in this very same chapter, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. What Jesus is saying there is if you want to make it into my heaven, the bar is higher than the most moral people you can think of. Think of the most moral person that you know in your life. It's so high, God says, it's perfection. That's God's standard. That's what James tells us in his epistle. And citizens of God's kingdom realize this. They can't do it. 
They know that they are poor in spirit. They admit that they are spiritually bankrupt. That's what Jesus is trying to show us in that famous parable in Luke 18 between the the Pharisee and the tax collector, right? He said the two men went up to pray in the temple, one a Pharisee and the other tax collector. And the Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I tithe all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That's what poor in spirit looks like. That's what poor in spirit sounds like. The reason Jesus told this parable is because some thought that they were morally overconfident. But it is the person who knows they are poor in spirit, the person who knows they have no special moral ability, the person who knows that they are not a first-round draft pick. Theirs is the kingdom of God. And notice the verb there. Did you notice the verb there? For theirs is the kingdom of God, brothers and sisters. You are a member of the kingdom presently if you believe that you're morally bankrupt. Secondly, Jesus tells us that kingdom citizens grieve over their sin. Kingdom citizens grieve over their sin. He writes, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. This is the, if you will, the other side of the same coin. Kingdom citizens not only acknowledge that they are spiritually bankrupt, but they react to it. There's a reaction that that realization brings. They grieve over it, not just initially, but throughout their life. That's what we were talking about last week when we spoke about lifestyle repentance. You grieve over your sin. My father has a ministry to, to successful men in, in country clubs down in Florida where he brings in successful Christian businessmen to talk at breakfasts about their faith and their business and how their faith and business intersect. I listened to one of the testimonies this week of a man called Bill Plotkin. He's a very successful builder who went from, who didn't go from rags to riches, but went from riches to rags. He told how he grew up in a household where his mother and father cheated on one another constantly. And when he got married, he, he vowed that he wouldn't do the same. But in his testimony, he said he did. He cheated on his wife multiple times. And he even said, probably more than my father did. As he told of his unfaithfulness and his indiscretions, he began to weep. Even though it was over 20 years ago, and he knows he'd been forgiven, he still weeps over the lifestyle that he led. He grieves over the sin that he committed. He mourns over that. 
You see, kingdom citizens grieve over their sin. Real kingdom citizens have real godly sorrow over their sin. Whatever that means in who God made you, whether it's crying or brokenness or calling out to God or regret or mourning, however God made you, there must be a mourning over your sin. Now, unfortunately, we're very Aristotelian as a, as a culture. We're highly influenced by that Greek philosopher, Aristotle, who taught to largely ignore emotions and even treat them as problematic. That's, that's kind of our culture, isn't it? But I believe Jonathan Edwards, that wonderful biblical theologian and pastor of the uh, 17th century was much more biblical. He wrote that emotions are central to character and there must be some emotional reaction, something related to your grief. Just think about it. The God who created us wept over Israel's sin in Jeremiah 9. Listen, listen, to, listen to how God put words to his grief. Oh, that my head were waters and my eyes a fountain of tears, that I might weep day and night, for they are all adulterers, a company of treacherous men. The God we serve has emotions and mourns over our sin. Think about Jesus, if you need somebody even closer to relate to. In Luke 19, when he was coming upon Jerusalem for that final time, he paused and it says he wept because of Jerusalem's hard-heartedness towards him. And kingdom citizens, children of that God, grieve over their sin. And the promise associated here is that those who do grieve, those who do mourn, they shall be comforted. Isn't that wonderful? But notice the verb there again in verse 4. It's not present, it's future. Yes, the comfort we find now is if we confess our sin, we are forgiven. And that is an amazing comfort, brothers and sisters, that God gives us. The comfort that he does not treat us as our sins deserve, but takes our sin and casts as far as the east is from the west and remembers it no more. That should be a balm of Gilead for us. But here God's word points us forward, isn't it? Not just now. Blessed are you who mourn. You shall be, shall be, will be comforted. He points us forward to a time when there won't be any more mourning over sin. Because there will be no more sin to mourn over. He's, he's looking at the consummated. He's telling us about the consummated kingdom that he's inaugurating now that will be consummated when he comes back a second time. And we read about that in Revelation 21 where it says, He will wipe away every tear from our eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be any more 
mourning. Isn't that interesting? Same word. No more grieving over your sin. Why? Because there's no more sin to grieve over. That's what we have to look forward to, brothers and sisters. There will be a time, there will come a time when our sin will be totally abolished from our lives. I mean, I sat in my office this week and tried to imagine that. And my mind couldn't go there because I'm so fraught with sin. But there will be a time when I will not sin anymore. That's beautiful. We no longer have the ability to sin. What a glorious thing to look forward to. Thirdly, Jesus describes kingdom citizens as those who live humbly in the current world. Those who live humbly in the current world. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. In the mid-20th century, before it was commonplace for international students to come to the U.S. to study, Taylor University, a Christian university in Indiana, learned that an African student named Sam was going to be enrolling in their school. He was a bright young man with great promise, and the school felt honored to have him come to study. When he arrived on campus, the president of the university actually took him on a tour of the campus, showing him all the dorms. When the tour was over, the president asked Sam where he would like to live, and this is what the young man said. If there is a room that no one wants, give that room to me. Over the years, he had welcomed thousands of Christian men and women to the campus, and none had ever said that before. He wrote that he went back to his office and wept. If there's a room that no one wants, give that room to me. That's what meekness sounds like. If there's a job that no one wants to do, I'll do that job. If there's a kid that no one wants to have lunch with, I'll eat with that kid. If there's a person no one wants to visit, I'll visit that person. If there's a parking space far away from the church, I'll park in that space. If there's a hardship someone has to endure, I'll take that hardship. You see, meek people are strong because they're willing to live weak-looking lives. Let me say that again. Meek people are strong because they're willing to live weak-looking lives. So what empowers a person to be meek? How, how do we... What makes a person able to live a meek life now? Well, certainly there is this this gospel change of your heart that happens as we meditate and read about and, and, and actually consume God's word about our Savior Christ who endured the scorn of the elite, the shame of being an itinerant rabbi, the ridicule of the centurions' crown of thorns, the enduring, the, the mocking of the people while on the cross. As we meditate on what Jesus went through For us, it begins to change our heart. That's the power of the gospel. It actually changes our heart. It makes us more meek, makes us willing to look weak like our Savior. 
But there's another thing that helps us live meek lives now, and it's found right here in this verse. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. The principle is a forward reward, a future reward. And that principle is riddled throughout Scripture. Last now, first eventually. Least now, most eventually. Faithful over little now, given much eventually. Endure now, reign eventually. These are the good words that Paul wrote to Timothy to encourage him. If we have died with him, we also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. 2 Timothy 2.12 Humble now, meek now, an heir eventually. An heir and co-heir with Christ. That's Romans 8, right? You see, it's not wrong for your life to be sculpted by the future. It's not wrong for your life now to be sculpted by what will come. I think that's what Jesus intends here. Throughout Scripture, the future is held out as an influence on how we're to live now. Think of that wonderful chapter in the Old Testament in Jeremiah 29. We all know that chapter. God tells his disgruntled, exiled, captive people to settle down in Babylon, right? And he says, hey, listen, plant gardens, marry, have sons and daughters, pray for the good of Babylon, even under captive conditions. And what does God give them as encouragement? You remember? It's probably one of the the few Old Testament verses that most of us have memorized. God says to them, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I'll come to you and fulfill my gracious promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a, say it, future. And that is what Jesus is doing right now. How do you live Last, least, humble and meek now. Think of the future. Meditate on the future. You shall inherit this earth when he comes back and consummates his kingdom. Meekness now is built on the foundation of what will be. You see... A kingdom citizen says, if there's a sacrifice someone needs to make, I'll make that sacrifice. And those words describe the ruler of this kingdom perfectly, doesn't it? Jesus, the meekest man to ever live, said, they can't live perfectly under God's law, so send me. I'll do it. I'll sacrifice. Galatians 4.4 4 says, When the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law. Born under the law. They can't do it. Put me under your law, God, and I will redeem those under the law. Jesus, the meekest man to ever live, said, They can't pay for their own sin. 
Send me. I'll sacrifice. First Peter 2.24 says, He bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. For by his wounds we've been healed. I'll sacrifice. Jesus, the meekest man to ever live, said they can't become citizens of my kingdom on their own. So I'll go. I'll make it possible. I'll give them the truth. I'll show them the way. That's exactly what he said to his disciples in John 14:6. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. Now, if you're listening to this podcast and you're not a Christian, I'm glad you're listening. I don't know how you made it onto our podcast, but I praise God that you made it onto our podcast. Because Jesus, the meekest man in history, lived, died, and rose again to make a way for you to be forgiven. To be born again. To become a citizen of God's kingdom. Please pray with me. Father God, I thank you for your son who did make a way for us who did pay the penalty for us, who did walk perfectly under your laws so that we may be redeemed and have his righteousness. Lord, I thank you for your word and how it sculpts us and, and challenges us, admonishes us, and encourages us. And I thank you for our church that sits under that authority of God's word. Be with us, Lord, even though we were scattered. Help us to feel through this podcast, this sermon that is preached through the wonder of, of electricity to touch our lives and to bring us together. In Jesus' name, amen.